Okay, good morning. We are experiencing hopefully a beautiful Chol HaMo'ed Sukkot, and we are in our learning, continuing Pirkei Avos, Chapter 1, Mishnah 11. Avtalion says, Chachamim hizaharu vidivrechem, scholars, be careful or cautious with your words. And we're speaking apparently allegorically that a teacher of Torah should be very careful that he expresses himself in a way that is crystal clear so that it cannot be misunderstood. Shema, because perhaps, you will incur the penalty of exile, and be banished to a place of evil waters. Now, this is fairly cryptic, but as we explained, the first part is that the teachers need to be very careful how they're teaching. And part of the reason is because it's extremely severe, the effect that an important teacher or personality can have on the listeners. Um, unfortunately, I learned this lesson too much uh, recently. I had apparently stated a point pretty emphatically, and somebody took that to the nth degree to mean that I shouldn't discuss, that they shouldn't discuss the matter with me. And I don't really even remember um, discussing it or saying it as emphatically or anything like they said. I don't even remember that. But in their minds, I, I said something very emphatically. I smacked my hand on the table and I made a statement. And in their minds, I meant, oh, that's something not to discuss. And they happened to disagree. So it actually created a, a rift and, in my opinion, a very negative effect on um, one of their family members. So in any event, that's all part of being very careful how we express ourselves, especially as teachers. And then it says, because if you're not careful, you may incur the penalty of exile, because the Torah in general says that a person who kills inadvertently goes to exile. And this is seen, and it's a very good thing to know, this is seen in general as a kind of a parable for a person that wastes their time, uh, wastes their lives, um, unfortunately has the um, wasting of semen, of seed, all of this in the kind of parable world is seen as something that is very self-destructive and causes instability. And so that's the idea of like being in a place of exile. And so a person who kills by mistake in a spiritual sense will also have to suffer exile. Now, the Mishnah then goes on to say that a person will be exiled to a place of evil waters. That means to a place of heresy, a place that's inhabited by heretics. And basically, they'll take what a scholar said, and they'll like kind of interpret it in a very specific way because it was either ambiguous or maybe it kind of leaned in that direction but didn't really mean that. And then they'll hang their hats on it and saying, see, even this rabbi said that, uh, you know, God is, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, um, able to become physical. Let's just use that as an example. Right. And so this is a way of saying that the teacher can cause very damaging effects and it can happen that the words themselves will be taken as heresy. Okay. Um, 
So one interesting interpretation that they have in the bottom uh, from the Chassid Yavitz is that this warning is addressed to the issue of engaging in the study of philosophy and other areas of knowledge that may lead to heresy. And then, very important italicized um, caveat, if not studied with due caution. So we have in general a principle that, um, number one, a person is not supposed to study heretical statements. At the same time, we also have a principle that a person needs to know what the other side says so that you can know how to defend it. Right. So you kind of do need to be able to know both sides of an argument. Uh, that's where the due caution comes into uh, consideration. Uh, if people are really unstable or uncertain about their beliefs, so then that obviously might not be the time to entertain other um, heretical uh, points of view. On the other hand, the person is very grounded and strong, then it might be worthwhile pursuing the other arguments so that a person knows what to respond. But very importantly is an idea that, um, that I don't remember if we spoke about it on this class at all or not, is that what we learn from the Torah is that people who are heretical actually have a natural desire to be heretical so that they don't have to appreciate and acknowledge God or responsibility because they don't want to admit that they owe, they don't want to feel like they have an obligation of responsibility towards God of, or of anyone. And so therefore they will choose arguments of heresy so that they don't have to be in a state of acknowledgement of owing or even confronting truth, which is why one of the very fundamental words for a Jew is a Yehudi, which means a person of admission. To be moda and thank you, toda, right? Both to admit and to thank are the same exact word in Hebrew, right? Which is the word that we use for confession in Yom Kippur. Because if a person is in that mindset, so then they're not going to be heretical because there's no other way that the world could be brought into being or could continue in such miraculous fashion if we just look at the Jewish people and many other miracles that we know about. So the bottom line is, I would suggest that a person only has to be concerned about either themselves or about someone else if they're feeling pretty narcissistic and selfish and don't want to admit the truth. Uh, once uh, a person is not in that way of thinking, then you know they can perhaps study these heretical ideas with caution and be able to know what to respond. So continuing with this Mishnah is that if the words are not clear and they somehow get taken out of context into heretical types of extrapolations, so then a person will be obligated uh, in a very severe way, and that's why he goes to exile, and the students, and then the students that come later after you will drink these words and they'll die because they're learning improper ideas. And then it comes out that the name of Hashem is desecrated. So this is really, really a deep mission. It's kind of interesting in that it's so um, cryptic uh, on the face of it. You know, it doesn't doesn't read simply in the ideas, 
but the ideas that are conveying are extremely important, especially this one here at the end, that consequent, consequently the name of Hashem may be desecrated because people are going to say, hey, look what happened to these scholars. They died. They met an untimely death. This, of course, brings to mind the devastating story of the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva, all of whom perished, and we do commemorate their passing with the you know, observances of the Omer, which is after leading up to Shavuos, after Pesach. And it is a terrible thing when, when you know, Torah scholars seem to be meeting very, very difficult ends, untimely or you know, the like. And unfortunately, a lot of it can be attributed back to not learning Torah properly, which is just very, very scary. Uh, but that's really what this Mishnah um, seems to be discussing. There are some other approaches that talk about scholars being careful with halachic pronouncements because um, they might lead people uh, to use their pronouncements leniently uh, because they're not, uh, again, explained so carefully and people will say in their name, oh, this rabbi permitted. Like, uh, I'll never forget somebody saying, telling me that my father told him that it's okay to ride a bike on Shabbos and that wasn't really the case. Um, you know, maybe something was taken out of context or whatever. So we have to be very uh, careful uh, because halachic decisions can also be misquoted. Another um, possibility is that an educator should be very careful not to say anything unless they practice what they preach. No teaching is as persuasive as a personal example. Um, I think it was, uh, I think it's Albert Einstein, maybe you got it from here, who said, um, teaching by example is not one form of teaching, it is the only form of teaching. That's obviously very important when it comes to our children, and that goes directly into our topic probably of leadership. And uh, it's a huge responsibility, it's a huge, huge responsibility to be taking on the position of a leader, a teacher, a parent, and not practicing what we preach. Um, let me just full disclosure say, most of the things that you hear from me are things that I'm struggling with myself. So don't look at my example. <laughs> Okay, so that's pretty much this Mishnah, I think. Would anybody like to have a question or a comment? I think as, as we look towards furthering our, our study of leadership and our, our growth in leadership, you know, I, I think this is another portion, another Mishnah, just like last week, that easily ties in. That um, I think that the... The carefulness with words as a leader is is also of utmost importance, so that those that are following, um, those that are following, have a clear path forward and and don't misinterpret what the mission is and don't misinterpret what the uh, appropriate actions are, um, whether it be business or, or community leadership. I think that there there's a direct corollary there. Um, I don't know if you would expand on it at all, Rabbi, or or any of the other. Uh, students on the call might want to expand on it as well for from their own experience. Well, my, my question would be here in, in the particular case that if you're a leader and you're inspiring somebody to become, you know, more, more practicing in the Jewish law, 
and you know that that person is coming from far apart what's how do you do it without overwhelming that person right and without losing him so if you say this person is not going to Shabbat, then starts driving to Shabbat, then goes on a bike to Shabbat. If you tell him directly, look, you're going to have to walk, and this is the, I mean, is there like a path, a way forward in a way that you can educate it without breaking this Mishnah? Is there some? Is there a way to progressively make that person get closer? So that is a great this? question. Yeah, that is an excellent question. Um, and I'll tell you how we deal with it in general. So the first thing that we always feel is the critical thing is to not encourage practices of any kind, but is to encourage study. Uh, that's the most important thing. Uh, this is this is what my father has taught us, and it's what we, it's what we primarily promote more than anything else. Doesn't that go against Nasev and Ishma? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the thing is, Nasev and Nishma is the person speaking for themselves. Over here, I'm supposed to be speaking for someone else, right? That would be like, Ta'asu right? You do, and then you'll understand. It doesn't say that. It says, we will do, meaning I will do, and then I'll understand, right? You know? Um, now, of course, if you have somebody who's very open and they want to do, that's that's a whole different story. But even then, you have to be careful to caution them. One time we had a student who uh, studied. He was from Kendall. He went to Israel. He studied in a pretty extreme place. He came to our yeshiva, and he was having a conversation with me. And he, he started. then he started telling me, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. What other stringency should I take upon myself? He says to me. I said, you see, you see that table over there? Go there and study for a little while. We'll, we'll talk in a couple of weeks. You know, this is not the goal to take on every stringency that a, that a person can take on. Um, now, I, to Ethan's point, um, and, and I'll get even more to, to Daniel's question in a moment. I often see younger people that are kind of ready to take on the world, like the example that I just gave. You know, I'll do everything and give me more and give me more. Um, and they don't have to deal with all the vicissitudes of life, and they have the luxury of other people paying their bills, um, or you know, kind of living in la la land of idealism, and not actually have faced you know a lot of the challenges of of the world like we've talked about here, family, work, and let's say observances, right? That that's a huge that's a huge package, and I feel like it's important to let them do their thing like recently a, a young couple was kind of bragging to me that they took on a certain stringency which i don't actually do and i said okay good very good you know and i'm thinking let's talk in a couple of years <laughs> let's see where you're on at on on that subject then and that's part of what i think is so important in the um because you know ethan you said about like sharing more from my own experience is that we have to let people find their own way and life has a way of challenging people enough without us challenging challenging them into facing those questions obviously if it's not good for them you know we have to try to figure out what we can share with them um, and then the next step after uh, you know encouraging someone to learn is to explain to them that nobody's perfect like we've had that conversation before, nobody's doing everything. And if they say they're doing everything correctly, they just lied, right? Like we've spoken about before. And so you have to tell people that 
everybody has to choose what's actually significant for them. Um, if you have a question about what's significant, like is this significant or is that significant, then I'm happy to discuss that. You know, like if you want to discuss like what you're considering, but everybody really has to come at it from their own place of choosing, uh, because if they don't, then it's very likely that it won't it won't even last whatever they they choose uh, to do. So that's the second step. First is learning, and then the second is that they should choose um, what they're considering and know that it's their choice. And then the final thing is I do try to encourage things that are obvious relationship builders. Those are practices that I do try to encourage. So, for example, yes, give a blessing to your children on Friday night. Why wouldn't you? And sometimes people feel guilty. They don't feel like they're worthy of giving a blessing. I said, too bad, you know, like step up, be a responsible person and give your child a blessing and try to be a person that can give a blessing, you know, uh, because I do think that that's a uh, a relationship builder. Can everybody still hear me? Um, and then finally, uh, I always just try to encourage a person to think about what area of life do they most want to improve? And okay, here are some Torah ideas about how to, let's say, improve that area. That's, that's I think, the path to help people. When a person asks me, should they drive to Shul and Yom Kippur? I try to say, listen, obviously you'll be welcome. If, if you come to us, we're, we're very happy to have you. Or Shabbos or Yom Kippur. Um, but, you know, I would I'd love for you to come and stay instead of drive. And so what you decide to do is up to you. You know, <laughs> that's up to you. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you yes. I'm not going to tell you, you know, that you can't. That's your choice. That's like a practical example. Yes, Joseph. Um. I think we need to make that distinction between leadership within the family and leadership within throughout community. Don't you think so? I, because uh, when it comes to family, um, if we just let, it, especially with the kids, if you just let them decide on their own, I, I, again, this comes to your own uh, practice, the way how you live your life. But uh, don't you think it's a difference um, of how how you try to influence uh, your own close family versus friends or the community at large? I definitely think that we have to be more hands-on and proactive when it comes to our family. Uh, rather than, let's say, just waiting for somebody to come ask you a question, you know, you, you would have to, uh, you know, try to take an active interest and maybe prompt a question, right? Um, so definitely that. But having said that, imposing on your family, not a good way to go. Instead, talking to them about the positives and about the benefits and about what happens as we uh, grow older, we have more responsibilities and you know we have more choices. And then what we do is more our fault. You know, who we become is more our fault than somebody else's fault. I find that that works a lot. Did I, did I give the example of my children davening recently? Did I mention that last week? So I never push my younger children. I'm talking about my my seven, my eight-year-old and six-year-old. Um, I never push them to come to shul. And I would like them to come to shul. I would, but I don't want to push them. So I decided that I'm just going to have a conversation with, with them, telling them that I'm very proud of them. I love them. I think they're awesome, and they're just amazing boys. And that as they get older, you know, 
they're more ready for shul. They're more able to sit. They know how to read better. They know how to participate. And that, you know, I would just love them to come for some of the time and see how it goes. And, um, you know, I'll just try to make a point of letting them know that I'm going and that hopefully they'll want to come with me. And let's try and let's see what happens. I wanted to, you know, it's... What's do you invite that? them? So if you're if you're heading down to Shul, do you do you invite them? Yes. Do you say, I'm, I'm going yes. to Shul, do you want to come? Yeah. Yes, yes. And I specifically made a point that my younger one, you know, can come for less time for sure, mm-hmm. you know, than, you know, he could be much less. My older one, you know, and I found that they've, you know, pretty, pretty well responded. My younger one is really much less ready, both personality-wise and age-wise. Uh, he's just yeah. not like a, you know, going to really sit all the time. But yeah, I found that it works well. So I think it's extremely important to not impose all the time, all the time. Yeah. But at certain points you have to, right? I mean, now it's the time to do Kiddush and Amotzi on Friday night or in the Neila, for example, I was having a hard time keeping my kids next to me and not running around and you have to like say, now you don't move, right? And you hold them. <laughs> there is a point in which as kind as kind as kindly as possible, but you have to right, otherwise they won't be there for the Virkatakwan in the financial yeah, no, no, I don't I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No, nope. I would say I'd love you to be here. You know, I'd love to, you know, have that moment with you under the Talit, for example, or um, you know, you probably learned about in school, you know, that this is our last chance, you know. But if you're not up to it, you're not up to it. You know, this because otherwise what really happens, forgetting not only is it you know, you create the conflict of imposition and resentment. You're not really explaining to them the truth. The truth is that they are responsible for themselves to the extent that they understand who they are and what they what they are. That's the truth. That is the truth. Really, really that's the truth, you know. So they can get to be proud of themselves when they make the choice and not proud of themselves when they don't make the choice. And they'll know. I'm a big believer that internally... Every person feels better about themselves when they make the good choice versus the bad choice. And that's the best thing in my mind to focus on with someone. How do you feel? Oh, you feel good about that. That's awesome. You know, I'm so proud of you. That's amazing. You know, how do you feel about it? You don't feel good. Yeah, that, yeah, you know, I know it hurts me when I also make, you know, that mistake or a choice that I'm not proud, you know? I think it's much better. Uh, There's very, even, even coming to the, you know, table for kiddish you know they're old enough and they should know better if they don't come i wouldn't force them but later i would try to understand why you know i would i wouldn't force them but i would try to understand why later there's always a toy that is appealing at that young age okay. but but to me to me that's a conversation i i agree with the rabbi and I, you know then i can tell you how we handle in our house like we, we just say look in, in our house this is this is what we do is as grossmans, you know, when it's time for candle lighting and, and then the other pieces you need to make it, you need to make it really wonderful for them. Our kids love all the songs that they do at school. So there's, you know, we say each one gets to lead us in a song and look every week does it work? No, but the majority of the time, you know, Evan has his that he wants to do. Jody has hers that she wants to do. We all join in. There's a couple songs that we do every week as a family that they don't do at school, but that their Grammy taught them. And, you know, you make it, you make it like that. And if, if they're futzing and playing, you say, look, this, this is a time that you should put it down. You can say, you know, 
you know, it might be nice if you put that down, you can pay attention better when you're not playing, but if it's, you know, if, it, <clears throat> if it's too harsh, I don't think it works. <clears throat> Rabbi, but I think I Ethan, I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to, I, I just want to elaborate on your points for a second, Ethan. When you say this is what the Grossmans do is you're actually giving the child pride because children naturally want to do like their parents. That's natural. And it's saying, listen, we have a kind of a vision of life and a way of living and, and they, and they buy into it. You know, they understand that. And they, they like that as opposed to this is what you have to do. So I think that's, it's very, it's a very good way, very beautiful way to encourage without imposing. It's also letting them know it's expected and they don't want to feel like they're not doing what the Grossman's do. But of course, if they have some real issue with it, that, that will come out, you know. Um, and then the second point about making it fun for them. Yeah, as adults, we're very, very often expecting children to just do what I say. And we're not thinking at all about their experience. So we have guests over, you know, we're talking to them, blah, blah, blah. Okay, come for good. Why are you coming to good? In the meantime, we haven't paid much attention to them. Right. Like, you know, they're not even part of the experience almost. Right. So there's a lot that we need to look at about what is their experience and how can we have them participate in it. One of the other things that I did is have them involved in the planning of Shabbos. And that really goes a long way also. I'm sorry, Ethan, I cut you off. There was there was one thing that you said, and this is a while ago. I don't I don't remember how long ago we discussed it, but we were talking about the. Um, the stories in the Torah and that reading, reading the actual stories, you know, there's some, some adult type topics in the Torah, but you said that a, a child, I forget exactly how you put it, but you said that a child's ready. There, there's some aspect of teaching the child, the real Torah, not whitewashing and not sugarcoating certain aspects of it. And I forget what that lesson was. And I was hoping you could remind us. Sure. I, I was once at somebody's house and he was going sentence by sentence with his daughter, because he knew how to read the Torah, I knew how to read the Torah, and I knew what he was doing, and he skipped over the part where Jacob, you know, kissed Rachel. And you know, I like, kind of looked at him, and I understood that he just felt like oh, that's not appropriate for her or whatever. And then a few minutes later, I heard him say, "And what happens if you turn the light on, Shabbos?" And the girl looks at him. Up and he's a tall fellow. Says, and I just remember thinking, man, this is not going to end well. <laughs> this is not going to end well. All that needs to happen is she turns on the light by mistake, or somebody else does, and nobody dies. And you know, so there, there, there goes that. Right now, the whole thing is not true. So yeah, that's not the way Torah is meant to be taught. The Torah it has a magical quality to it, but also the Torah knows what children can understand and children do understand, and it's very useful for the children to get their understanding of reality from truth. So just like, you know, uh, in our days, we used to talk about uh, the facts of life. And when, when do you teach a child the facts of life? Why is it okay to teach a child the facts of life? That should never be okay. I mean, that's terrible, right? Not until they're ready to get married. Mm, not so much, right? Because the reality is they're curious. They're going to learn about it. They should know it from the real truth because that's the truth. And they have to handle the truth. You know, children have to handle the truth. And so the Torah is teaching us truth, and children are capable of handling it. I see it all the time. Thank you.
Yeah, it's one thing if a child has, you know, no interest and no maturity ability to understand it, but if they can understand, they can handle it, especially the way the Torah presents it. Okay, so we're almost basically up to our Torah time. Maybe, maybe we'll do that. Okay, good. This is great.